Hi. I'm Lone Candle. You've seen the stats. The United States pays way more for healthcare than other countries without getting better outcomes. Not just per capita, but procedure by procedure, drug by drug, we are emptying our wallets while other advanced countries get a better deal. Not only this, but the process of paying for healthcare is truly hell. It's difficult to find out how much something costs. Sometimes you get a bill that ends up being way higher than what was quoted beforehand. Often you have to get the care and then wait a few months to see how many hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands of dollars you supposedly owe. A big idea that's been blossoming for the last decade or more is high deductibles. High deductibles are supposed to put skin in the game and force people to shop more carefully for healthcare, either by not using care we don't need or by finding providers offering better prices. With high deductibles, the hope was that a normal market for healthcare could form that would drive down prices and ease the consumer experience. High deductible plans have become common. From 2002 to 2016, deductibles for private insurance have more than tripled, and now a majority of the U.S. workforce is in high-deductible plans. So, has forcing people to pay a thousand or more dollars before their insurance kicks in improved prices and the shopping experience? Fuck no. Everything's still shit. Some people point to the competitive prices of certain procedures, like LASIK surgery, breast augmentation, and vasectomies, to argue that unregulated skin in the game works. However, these are procedures sold in a bulk package. Normal medical care doesn't start with a consumer wanting a particular procedure and providers being able to offer that solution in bulk. Medical care starts with someone having a medical issue, and a variety of services result from that. Also, these procedures are not urgent nor necessary. This cools down the emotional energy and fear around getting healthcare, as well as gives the consumer the time to shop and decide not only which provider to hire, but whether to get the procedure at all. People who use these procedures have the wealth, time, and health to get them. This makes it easy for providers to price the products. These markets are more like shopping for luxury goods than needed medical care. Because most healthcare is very different than the key examples of how great high deductibles could be, they don't provide much insight for the overall healthcare market. To gain that, we need to look at how high deductibles are actually working. There have been lots of studies done, and it does appear that in some cases, high deductibles or skin-in-the-game strategies can lower prices. But other times, there appears to be no effect. The stronger finding is that skin in the game reduces spending. However, this isn't because prices are lower, but because people are just using less healthcare. If they are smartly skipping low-value care, then this is a good thing. But the studies suggest that people are skipping all kinds of healthcare, including needed healthcare. Thus, forcing people to pay more for basic care leads people to not get that basic care. For some of them, that will lead to worse problems down the road. So, high deductibles are not a silver bullet for our problems, and if they were particularly effective, 
we would know because they have been the way of the land for some years now. What now? There are two buckets of solutions. One is government or corporatist price controls, and the other is trying to build on high deductibles to create a working market for healthcare. Honestly, both solutions suck, but both may be better than the current system. I'm going to talk about single payer and price controls first, then market solutions. In the end, a well-regulated market-based system with welfare supports for the low income has never been tried. I'm open to reforming our current system to give that a real serious go. Maybe it will produce a system better than any to have existed. Maybe it will create less disruption with lower risk compared to something like single payer or price controls. Giving a full faith try of making the healthcare market work is worth a true attempt. But once we have fairly given it a shot, including adjustments along the way, and after a decade or so goes by, if it fails to significantly improve the market for healthcare, it will be time to accept that we need price controls. Almost every other advanced country, all of which have cheaper healthcare prices than the U.S., have some sort of government price controls. Some of these are determined by a team of experts in the bureaucracy, while others have a more corporatist structure where insurance groups and healthcare providers are forced to come together in government-managed negotiations, resulting in an agreement on prices. While this makes us think of single-payer, many countries with price controls are not single-payer. In single-payer, everyone is insured by the same insurance organization. The classic example is the government being the one payer for all medical procedures and drugs. These systems can include supplemental insurance to pay for higher quality niceties or procedures not covered by the single-payer system. Medicare for All would be single-payer. Canada is single-payer. The United Kingdom is a strong form of single-payer where it not only has a government insurer, but the government actually runs the healthcare providers too. None of this is necessary for price controls, though. The government could set prices and let private insurers still offer coverage. Price controls would likely save money and lead to a cheaper healthcare system. However, there are large risks and problems with both single-payer and price controls. The bulk of problems could be summed up as too much demand compared to supply. These are caused by both making healthcare too cheap to the user and paying providers too little. In the most extreme scenario, where healthcare is 100% free to every citizen, that incentivizes people to use healthcare for any little thing. It incentivizes them to use more expensive facilities and procedures even when it makes little medical sense to use such resources. With this, we get an overcrowding of hospitals and long wait times, both of which can lead to preventable deaths. Many treat this as a critique of single-payer, but it is not. There's no reason single-payer has to give people such a good deal. Whoever is paying the medical bill on behalf of the consumer, this is a problem with no skin in the game and no payment differentiation between low-cost and high-cost healthcare. If people can get healthcare too cheaply, they will overuse it and not be price conscious. On the supply side, not paying doctors enough, as well as making their days more stressful by overcrowding their facilities, may lead to a lower supply of doctors. Some countries have issues maintaining doctors. Either they retire early switch fields, work their trade in a higher-paying location, 
or young potential doctors decide the pay and work conditions aren't good enough. With less providers, meaning less supply, that helps create overcrowding and wait lists. The issue isn't limited to the supply of doctors. Investors may invest less as there is less profit to be gained, or less chance of success due to lower prices. Investments are also risky because government prices may be unpredictable in that investors may fear that governments may change prices after investments are made. Actors with innovative ideas may decide executing them is too risky with too low of payments for services. So, new potential providers may never come into existence due to price controls. A related group of problems is the possibility that single-payer or low-provider compensation limits innovation. The more money a drug company can make for creating a life-saving drug, the more likely it will put in the time and resources to develop it. The same goes for medical equipment and procedures. The higher a provider can charge for services, the more likely it is to provide the best cutting-edge technology and techniques. It's possible that setting prices too low will slow the advancement of medicine. Single-payer also has a classic problem for any monopolist. Why stay lean and efficient if there is not a competitive threat? Maybe by allowing multiple insurers to compete for members, that will force them to stay efficient as well as to innovate. Generally, it will be tough for governments or government-managed negotiations to set proper prices that appropriately capture supply and demand for the myriad of products and services in the healthcare industry. Thanks to international and domestic examples, we know the extent that price controls work. However, we also know their downsides. We should be open to trying alternative methods. The current U.S. system is a mix of systems. Medicare and Medicaid are single-payer. Employment-based insurance is subsidized by the government, but is neither single-payer nor an individual market. The VA is government-run healthcare while Medicare Advantage and Affordable Care Act exchanges are managed individual markets. If a market-based solution could succeed, we may be able to avoid the great downsides of government-set fees or single-payer. We may be able to use the power of the market, even in the healthcare industry. So far, our attempts to create working markets have been half measures. Let's look at ideas to make them full measures. There are a variety of market-focused plans, but to focus on one as a key example, I will look at Avic Roy's free-op plans. He proposes a variety of reforms to create working healthcare markets with no or limited government price setting. The free-op plan involves a variety of reforms, all aimed at producing an individual health insurance market where people have choices between different types of plans. This market would, in the end, be more inclusive, rather than having fragmented systems. So, after a transition period, the old, the poor, the employed, the unemployed, and veterans would all use the same marketplace. A further goal is to end subsidies to the well-off. Currently, most Americans get some kind of help from the government to pay for health insurance. The free-op plan would only reserve taxpayer help for those with lower incomes. To move away from employer coverage, the plan allows employers to fund accounts for employees to purchase individual insurance. The Trump administration actually allowed this in 2019. Additionally, FreeOp would add a requirement for newly formed corporations to fund these accounts instead of employer-sponsored insurance. Thus, current businesses wouldn't have to transition if they didn't want to, 
but future ones would only get health insurance subsidies if they moved their employees to individual markets. This is how the employer market would transition to the individual market. Also, the plan would end the ACA's employer mandate. Freeop points out that a huge problem in healthcare prices is monopoly power among hospitals and drug companies. The market for hospital services is regional, so once hospitals merge into regional systems, they use their market power to force high prices on insurance companies and uninsured people. Not only do regional hospital monopolies use their power to force high prices, they force secret contracts that forbid insurers from using hospitals that may be less expensive or higher quality, or force insurers to include some of the system's hospitals in their network. Some contracts forbid the sharing of prices with patients. Hospitals also buy out physician practices, giving them the power to charge hospital-level fees for services that before were cheaper, and allowing the hospitals to pressure physicians to direct their patients into the hospital system's facilities. Additionally, hospitals use non-compete agreements so that physicians can't become competitors. Therefore, Freeop proposes tough measures to make such markets competitive. In markets with high market concentration, Freeop would cap reimbursement rates for individual and private payers at Medicare Advantage rates. If the market is competitive, or if a hospital has less than 15% market share, the caps would not apply. With this in place, hospitals would not have the incentive to merge just to raise prices. Freeop also proposes public disclosure of payer-provider contracts and an all-payer claims database, expanding antitrust staff at the Federal Trade Commission so it can regulate anti-competitive practices and publish quarterly data on market concentration, federal grants to states to encourage them removing laws that limit competition, harmonizing state licensing, reference pricing, scope of practice laws to ease medical tourism and telemedicine, and integrating VA hospitals into the larger system. The hope is that real hospital competition will lower costs and spur innovations. Hospitals claim that they need to cost shift due to their losses from Medicare and Medicaid, but the evidence doesn't support their claim. Hospitals charge a ridiculous amount of money for certain services because they can. Several analyses have failed to find a relationship between hospital spending on a procedure and patient outcomes, so these prices are not driven by higher quality. Studies on the effect of hospital mergers on health outcomes average out to find no effect. There is no correlation between drug prices and the cost of innovation, nor between drug prices and the degree of innovation. Instead, high drug prices are caused by market power. Freeop has a variety of proposals to increase competition in the drug market and limit the prices of drugs sold with monopoly power. Freeop would apply Medicare Advantage rates to out-of-network surprise bills. To limit premiums, the plan would use integrated high-risk pools through reinsurance. Here, the costs of the most expensive insurance customers are paid for by the government. With the cost of these people taken off the balance sheets of insurance companies, they can charge lower premiums. Studies estimate that a $20 billion federal reinsurance program could reduce premiums by 20% and lower ACA premium subsidies by up to $16 billion. The reinsurance should also include maternity care so men won't face higher premiums due to the requirement that they pay the same premium as women. Under the ACA, insurers have to charge young people at least a third of what they charge old people. 
even though a 64-year-old is six times costlier than a 19-year-old. This doubles younger people's premiums and causes more of them to not enter or stay in the insurance pool. With less healthy young people in the insurance pool, premiums for older people also go up. Freeop would change the ACA's legal premium ratio that insurance can charge old people versus young from 3 to 1 to 6 or 5 to 1 in hopes that this would get younger people in the insurance pools in lower premiums. Currently, the ACA offers catastrophic plans that are not often sold because they are still expensive and purchasers can't receive subsidies. Freeop would replace this with a copper plan that would have an actuarial value of 50% not be required to have out-of-pocket caps, and be eligible for subsidies. Freeop would repeal several ACA taxes, including taxes on health insurance premiums, medical devices, pharmaceutical products, flexible spending accounts, medical expenses over 7.5% of adjusted gross income, over-the-counter medications, and HSA withdrawals. The hope is that without these taxes, premiums will be lower. Freeop would allow consumers to keep their premium subsidy in an HSA if they buy a plan with a premium lower than the subsidy. This gives consumers the incentive to shop for cheaper plans. Without this, they might as well buy a plan at least as expensive as the subsidy to maximize their government payout. The ACA gives cost-sharing subsidies to people below certain incomes to help them pay for deductibles, copays, and other cost-sharing. Freeop would instead put this money into HSAs so people can keep this money if they don't use it on medical expenses in a particular year. Current permanent income-based ACA premium subsidies are for those with incomes from 100% to 400% of the federal poverty line. In 2021, that yearly income for a family of one is $12,880 to $51,520. Freeop would allow those below this level to choose individual plans with subsidies rather than Medicaid. Freeop would also allow incomes up to 600% of the federal poverty line to get subsidies. In 2021, 600% of the poverty line for a family of one is 77280 in yearly income. This would be paid for by the eliminating of subsidies for the wealthy. Freeop would combine tax-advantaged savings accounts like HSAs, FSAs, HRAs, and MSAs into a single fund and would include matching contributions up to $1,000, as well as fund states and local organizations for five years to help educate Americans about their new accounts. FreeUp would also change the yearly enrollment to an every five-year enrollment or slash and have penalties for people enrolling late. For a market to work in healthcare, there must be pricing transparency. Transparency helps inform consumers, patients, employers, and insurers. This not only helps individuals shop for healthcare and insurers negotiate with providers, but helps individuals and employers shop for insurance. Additionally, transparency may produce public pressures on providers who overcharge. Freeop would create an all-payer claims database that reveals the details of provider contracts. This would make detecting anti-competitive behavior easier and allow price transparency for health insurers, facilitating competition. The ACA put in a bunch of rules that redistribute to those who use more health insurance. This drives up premiums. Freeop would limit those rules. 
Free Health considers the repeal of the ACA insurance mandate slash tax penalty a good thing because that means insurance products have to be attractive to consumers. FreeUp likes the ACA metal tiers of bronze, silver, gold, and platinum that helps consumers compare the financial value of health plans. They also agree with guaranteed issue and community rating, which say that insurers can't deny coverage to those willing to pay the premium and that all people of the same age must be charged the same premium. They also like lifetime out-of-pocket limits to protect people from catastrophic financial loss. FreeUp also has reforms for Medicare. They would default new retirees into Medicare Advantage plans that have premiums no higher than that of single-payer Medicare. For low-income seniors eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, FreeUp would give them a special unified Medicare Advantage plan. To limit Medicare's prescription drug costs, they would use an international benchmark based on prices in countries who have a role for private insurance. They'd give no Medicare subsidies for those with lifetime earnings above $10 million and would replace Medigap plans with a cost-effective system, adding catastrophic coverage to traditional Medicare. They'd also limit state taxes on premiums and providers because these increase Medicare costs. Currently, Medicare prices are heavily influenced by the RUC committee that is made up of people from the American Medical Association and specialty physician societies. Physicians have an obvious financial bias to up the prices for procedures they get paid for. We could instead do one or more of these options. Use Medicare Advantage rates. Do research to create market-based ways to determine rates. Use an international index based on what other countries who have a role for the market pay. Use a committee that had payers, actuaries, and economists rather than just physicians. Or such and cap per enrollee physician spending at consumer inflation. FreeUp has a variety of other reform suggestions to reduce Medicare costs, including either increasing Medicare eligibility age or forcing 65- and 66-year-olds into Medicare Advantage plans rather than single-payer Medicare. So, FreeUp's reforms are still at their core a high-deductible system, but try to fix the regulatory and competitive context so that the skin in the game of high-deductibles actually works. Some of the reforms are fixing rules that make healthcare and health insurance too expensive. Once fixed, insurance companies should have an easier time getting wider risk pools because they can offer a greater variety of products at lower prices. Other reforms are about forcing real competition in a real market with transparency and competing providers. Without a real market, high deductibles and reformed health insurance regulations won't work. Forcing a real market on providers will create a battle with legislators and bureaucrats on one side and providers on the other. Relative to the myriad of reforms and regulations intended to manage market-determined prices, price controls, which force prices on providers, are simpler. The FreeOp series of reforms provides lots of opportunities for providers to corrupt the system, and because no one body is determining prices, it's harder to pinpoint blame and hold people accountable, which creates lots of room for self-serving providers to limit their competition. They can do so on the legislative front by lobbying to weaken bills to the point that they are ineffective. They can find loopholes in the laws and regulations that allow them to continue anti-competitive practices. They can use clever marketing and pricing strategies to counteract the systems. 
The success of the FreeOp plan relies on providers largely losing these battles. If providers are allowed to game the FreeOp reforms, then there won't be a real working market in healthcare. People won't be able to reasonably shop. Insurance companies won't be able to negotiate reasonable prices and contracts or offer a variety of plans designed to keep costs down. Providers have worked for decades to create and maintain high prices. They won't stop now. Can the free op reforms win and create working health care and health insurance markets? Free op recognizes that the prices are the problem. Reducing overuse or the unnecessary use of expensive care, like hospital visits, helps. But the driving problem is prices. The average cost of a U.S. hospital stay is twice as much as the median OECD hospital stay and lasted less days. The U.S. also has less hospital discharges per capita compared to the OECD average, and a lower percentage of U.S. hospital beds are occupied. Generally, the U.S. uses health services less than the OECD median. So the cause of our ridiculous spending isn't frequency of use, but prices. Studies also find that recent increases in per-person healthcare spending are more caused by increases in price than utilization. Controlling market leverage will always be a challenge. Take the example of drug coupons. Insurers try to incentivize the use of cheaper generic drugs by giving generics lower copays. Drug companies countered by giving people coupons which make the out-of-hand price cheaper than the generic copay. This counters the insurer's incentives and facilitates people buying the far more expensive drugs because those drugs are cheaper to them, but still more expensive overall after the insurance company pays its portion of the bill. Insurers could drop the expensive drug altogether, but that may lose them customers. Similarly, Drug makers use questionable tactics to extend their patents and maintain their monopolies. Tricks like these show the challenge free market reformers face to actually control prices. Will a more market-based policy ever keep up with the money-making tactics? Or is the only solution the heavy hand of government fixed prices? The free op reforms assume that a truly laissez-faire market won't work for healthcare. The reforms include a lot of regulation and bureaucratic involvement. Just look at reinsurance, the plan to reimburse insurance companies for particularly expensive customers. If government-funded reinsurance programs are necessary, this means markets don't actually work to provide health insurance to the entire population. So we are trying to force them to work with subsidies. Some of the offerings of insurance companies actually counteract skin-in-the-game effects. Gap coverage is insurance for the deductible and takes away the skin-in-the-game of a high deductible. Narrow networks give consumers less options for shopping around, limiting the ability to compare prices and for this portion of the market to work. Narrow networks decrease provider competition. If the actions of not only providers, but insurance companies work against skin in the game, do free op reforms have a chance? Another problem is that many health services will never be shoppable, meaning people can't have the time and ability to compare price and quality. 
Services are unshoppable either due to the nature of how one gets that service, due to the nature of the service itself, or due to the ailment's effect on the patient. Estimates for the percentage of shoppable services range from 35 to 54%. The higher number assumes all prescription drug spending is shoppable. If a majority of services are likely not shoppable due to the nature of healthcare, will 35 to 54% of services being shoppable be enough to affect prices? Even among shoppable services, and even with transparency, will most healthcare ever truly be shoppable? When someone goes for care, they receive a complex mix of services. And what's paid isn't simply the provider's price, but the price resulting from insurer negotiations, deductibles, and coinsurance or copayments. Furthermore, will most people ever be a good judge of the quality of services offered by competing providers? Outside of basic tests or scans that are routine, very little in healthcare seems even close to shoppable. It may be unrealistic to expect most people to understand the ins and outs of both the medical care they may receive and the financing systems that determine how much they owe. Studies involving interviews reveal very low knowledge about insurance, and when groups of people switch to high-deductible plans, they not only lower their spending on services that would be expensive to them, but healthcare that skips the deductible and would be free or low cost to them. Additionally, people often weigh heavily the advice of their doctors. In a normal market, there isn't a respected authority putting their thumb on what you buy. Similarly, people often feel loyalty and trust in their current doctor, so they're more reluctant to change to a cheaper option than one may feel in most market transactions. Finally, in most markets, there isn't the fear that if you don't get a certain service, you'll die. Not only can this fear make a rational decision difficult, many medical issues affect one's ability to think. Generally, people have trouble judging the alternatives when making healthcare decisions. We often don't have clear preferences. Evidence on transparency and giving people transparency tools is mixed. Some studies find it lowers spending and prices for people. Others find it does not. Especially in concentrated markets, transparency hasn't been found to help. A consistent finding is that only a small percentage of people bother to use the shopping comparison tools. In my minimal, antidotal experience, the shopping tools given by my health insurance are pretty inaccurate, and when I ask for a price ahead of time from providers, that price is usually much lower than the actual bill. Not only has shopping for medical care proven difficult, but so has shopping for insurance. Surveys have shown that people don't understand the basics of their health insurance, and studies on private insurance, the Medicare market, and the ACA all find that people often choose objectively worse plans. One study running a simulation where people chose from fabricated ACA plans found that, after excluding people who didn't understand the basics of insurance, more than half of people chose a plan that is worse than another available plan in all scenarios. Real-world results find the same thing in a variety of markets and places. People choose plans that are objectively worse, revealing a lack of ability to choose insurance well. They also tend to stick with whatever plan they have, even if a better option comes along. When choosing between traditional Medicare with a gap plan and Medicare Advantage, people usually stick with the plan they first chose. 
even if factors change where that's not a good choice anymore. Insurance companies take advantage of this by raising premiums after the first year. A variety of studies cutting insurance choice different ways suggest that people don't understand insurance and their own medical behavior enough to choose the best plan to even meet their own stated preferences. Decisions are all too often made based on misunderstandings and misestimations. 5% of people account for over half of all healthcare spending, 10% account for two-thirds, and 1% for over 22%. The bottom half of people use 2.9% of healthcare spending. For the bottom 50%, they paid for a quarter of their healthcare out of pocket. For the top 5%, only 5.7% of their health expenses were out of pocket. A huge chunk of healthcare spending is by a small percentage of people. This means a huge chunk of healthcare spending is by people who have blown through their deductibles and their out-of-pocket maximums. Therefore, even with a transparent and competitive market, most spending isn't in a context where people have the incentive to shop, even if their services are shoppable, because those small amount of people who do a majority of the spending quickly reach the point where insurance picks up the tab. This casts further doubt on people affecting prices by shopping. However, insurers may still have the incentive to negotiate down prices. Successfully passing and implementing managed market reforms like free ops are a huge challenge. It's not clear if they will ever work for healthcare. But it's plausible that allowing more market mechanisms to function in healthcare will improve the system. Single payer and price controls have their own downsides. They also don't seem likely to pass Congress. So I say we give something like FreeOp a hard push, implement as many of these reforms as possible, make adjustments over the years as we see what works and what doesn't, and give the managed market a chance. There's no sense dying on the hill that is single payer when we can try proposals that are essentially a reformed ACA marketplace that also transitions VA, Medicaid, the employed, and maybe the retired to an individual market. Price controls are always dangerous and require us to trust the government to get right the myriad of prices throughout the healthcare industry. Competition gives multiple organizations a chance to come up with better ideas or to act more efficiently and gives them incentives to do so. Improving competition in healthcare could be a great boon as providers and insurers are forced to innovate, act efficiently, and produce services and products appealing to customers. A system too controlled by the government will ruin that mechanism and will instead rely on bureaucratic safeguards, pressure from Congress, and the goodness of government workers' hearts. Historically, market mechanisms have worked better to provide people quality and affordable products and services. Market incentives help create and grow productivity improvements as actors try new ways of doing things in order to make more profit or survive in a competitive environment. Without competition, this constant pressure to improve isn't there, and incumbent actors set up rules to protect themselves from competitors. There's hope that doing more than just high deductibles will not only lower spending, but these spending reductions will be concentrated in low-value care. In Indiana, a study tracked state employee health care from 2007 to 2009 when the state first offered a high-deductible plan that also gifted to an HSA the full amount of the deductible. 
The result was lower spending and evidence that people were still going in for preventative medicine. There's evidence that different types of high-deductible strategies can work to reduce spending. A stronger insurance market combined with a competitive healthcare market may allow the best insurance ideas to win out. Healthcare transparency and competition among providers doesn't just help consumers shop, it helps insurers negotiate down prices. While it's true that even under an improved system, shopping for healthcare seems daunting, shopping for a car is complex and challenging as well. Most people don't understand all the differences between two vehicles. Yet, car markets still work. Markets don't have to be even close to perfect to bend industries towards efficiency, innovation, and customer benefit. There's a real chance that with better rules structuring the market, consumers can make better choices and providers will be incentivized to compete on price and quality. No one really knows what percentages of services are shoppable enough so that competition will have positive effects. Outside of true emergency care, which is only 2-6% to of U.S. healthcare spending, or situations where a patient is too sick to make decisions, many situations that don't seem shoppable may be so in a competitive and transparent market. Additionally, improved markets for insurance may produce insurance solutions that make up for the limits of consumer shopping. Studies have found evidence that decision assistance lowers the chance that people choose an objectively worse insurance plan. Another option is to create a default plan that is not objectively worse than any other plan. While I agree that not everyone will be able to be educated to make the best financial decision every time, that's always the case with markets. Yet, even if just some people take advantage of transparency reforms and attempts to educate health consumers, this will save money and could have knock-on effects on prices for everyone, not just the smart shoppers. Most people don't carefully compare prices between different grocery stores, yet grocery stores compete on price. Studies have found that when some people are given better tools for price comparison, both these people and other people in the area get better prices for some health services. However, studies also show limited use of such transparency tools. Part of the limited effects may be due to norms. People are not used to shopping for healthcare. Once shopping is made more feasible, norms can change over time and lead to shopping being expected by both consumers and providers. With a change in norms, transparency and shopping tools should have more effect. Evidence for the effects of each reform is limited, but they should work best together, synergistically improving healthcare markets. Studies have found evidence that certain reforms work best when there is already less provider market concentration. So, if we implement all the major pieces of managed market reform, the new system should work better than evidence only looking at each reform in isolation. We in the United States do have something to lose. We have some of the best healthcare in the world, but it's too damn expensive. We attract doctors from around the world. We're innovative. We risk all of that with price controls. Before going that route, we should give a real strong push to creating a working managed market. I'm Lone Candle. Like me? Comment me. Love me. Ah. See, it was an apple, and I took a bite, ah. and it formed a heart. <laughs> Love you!